Let's turn in our Bibles uh, this morning to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. I'm sure there's somebody here this morning who's only here because they saw the title of the sermon, 666. I'm sure that there are many theories about this number, and uh, we'll probably not be using any of them this morning, but you're welcome. We're going to read from verse 11. Let's hear the word of God. Then I saw another beast rising from the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, or it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This chapter, chapter 13 of Revelation, is very significant in the unfolding drama of this book. It introduces us to the first two of a triad of agents and instruments, tools, whom Satan the dragon uses in his age-long assault upon the church of God. In this chapter, Satan summons forth two beasts. The first is a terrifying monster and represents the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations and governments of this world. It alerts us to the fact that the world is not a friend of God or His Christ. In echoing Psalm number 2, you remember where the nations gather together. The kings of the earth come together against the Lord, plot together against the Lord and against His Messiah. The second beast, on the surface at least, seems harmless enough. Let's read that again. I saw another beast which rose out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. Those are the key words. Like a lamb. So far, so gentle. When we remember that Jesus in this book is described as the Lamb of God, 
you can tell that initially the beast doesn't appear to be a beast. In fact, in the beginning, the beast that looks like a lamb might even look Christianized or Christian in some form or another. We'll come back to that later. The first beast comes with all the machinery and power of the military, industrial, and uh, legislative complex and turns that against the church. Uh, This second beast comes with all the subtlety of a sophisticated propagandist. And there's no doubt whose publicist he is. The text says, it spoke like a dragon. I said there will be a third member of this triad. They're not uh, introduced until chapter 17, but the third member is Babylon. Babylon that represents civilization, the culture, the industrial uh, world, uh, the world of people, what Jesus called the world. Our focus today, though, is on the second beast. Jesus linked false Christs and ultimately the false Christ Antichrist, and false prophets, and ultimately the false prophet. Revelation chapter 16 says that this beast is the false prophet. In other words, he represents the devil's mind. If the first beast is a concentration of the devil's power at work against the church, In this beast, we see the devil's mind. He is his mouthpiece. He is the devil's minister of propaganda. And it takes various forms. It may take the form of false religion, a false prophet in that sense. It may very well, and this was Jesus himself indication, represent a deviant form of Christianity. And then, of course, there will be a secular form, secular ideologies, philosophies, and so on. James, in James chapter 3, verse 15, refers to anti-Christian wisdom coming from the earth. This beast comes from the earth. So the false prophet then is deceptive in his appearance. He looks like a lamb, but speaks for Satan. We're told that he does tricks. He performs pseudo-miracles to deceive the masses. He will, we might put it in our language today, be expert in manipulating the mass media of communication. In the first century, they would have observed it in the heathen religious leaders who were cooperating with the heathen politicians in their battle against incipient Christianity. Here the significance is in his lamb-like appearance and to his being from the earth. The political uh, military machine of Antichrist represents, if you like, kind of top-down dominion and domination. That's the spirit of Antichrist and the figure of Antichrist himself. Raw power. He will enforce his will Through the governments of the world, Satan will enforce his will on the earthlings. But in the second beast, Satan succeeds in another way. 
He resembles the lamb, though he conceals the dragon. In other words, he will strike you as appealing and attractive. In fact, he will look quite innocent, just a nice little lamb for the children to pet. His way of achieving Satan's purpose is not to enforce or display raw power. Quite the reverse, he will come across as a gentle, compassionate, even loving person. The link with Jesus, the Lamb of God, is quite deliberate. Now, this week, a friend, the congregation here, put me on to a lead that took me to listening to a a podcast. I don't usually listen to podcasts because I don't want to be influenced by those who usually appear on them, but this was a very helpful one. And he put me on the track of Judas Iscariot. I had been looking for a handle for thoughts that I'd already developed uh, through wide reading. I've only got about 40 or 50 commentaries on Revelation, so there's a lot of reading has to go on before I put any pen to paper. But uh, this guy was drawing attention to the the way in which Judas is a kind of prototype of uh, the false prophet. He was a false disciple, you remember. And we know about Judas. What do we know about Judas? He performed signs and wonders like all the others did. And he was a follower of Jesus. He belonged to the apostolic band. He was considered one of the disciples of Jesus. But then there's that little episode, isn't there, where Mary of Bethany gets a jar of very expensive nard, whatever that was, And you remember, she breaks it and she pours it all over the Lord. In her joy at being with Jesus, in her love for Jesus, in the worship that she knew, she knew in her inner being. This is the Mary who'd listened to Jesus very closely while Martha was doing the dishes. This is the Mary who understood Jesus. And she knew that the Lord Jesus deserves the worship of his people. Well, you remember Judas's reaction. What a waste that was. Shouldn't you have spent that money on the poor who need fed, clothed, and housed? You could have done so much good for people. Yet you selfishly waste this resource by lavishing it all on Jesus. And the Bible, the Holy Spirit, gives us an insight into his true motives and attributes his motives to the power of Satan, the dragon. Now, Jesus is is a good study of satanic work through Antichrist, but particularly the false prophet. In every generation, false prophets come disguised as sheep. Even in the Bible, St. Peter, who is no doubt a believer, he's confessed Jesus. I'm sure Peter thought he was doing a good and godly thing when he tried to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem because by going there, he would put himself at risk. And he was trying to prevent Jesus from taking the road to the cross. Do you remember Jesus' reaction? Get behind me, Satan. 
And Jesus similarly exposes the pious platitudes of Judas, self-righteous, torn, as he puts down Mary and her worship and elevates something else. Jesus replies to him, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And the Holy Spirit tells us what only the Holy Spirit knows, the mind of Judas. And he says, Judas did not care for the poor. Antichrist and the false prophet will at times prioritize actions and attitudes which will present themselves as more loving, more embracing, more inclusive, more impressive than the things of God, the worship of Christ, the fellowship of saints, and so on. Antichrist may perform miracles that get the attention of the masses. Judas performed miracles as part of the apostolic band, and yet he rejected Jesus. Even as he sounded so altruistic, he was already plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed. Now, I was, as I say, helped by this reference to think about what's going on here in terms of weaponized compassion, where people use compassion as a way to make you feel guilty about doing things that you should be doing as a Christian. Uh, We find that in many ways. Uh, what What was Judas, if you think of this for a moment, what was Judas actually rejecting when he came down harsh on Mary? He was objecting to Mary's making Jesus the priority in her life. She was objecting to uh, Mary making Jesus the object of her worship. She was objecting to Mary investing everything she was and had, her dignity as well as her money, in Jesus as her Savior and Lord. And let me tell you this, the worship of Jesus as God is the highest occupation of which a human being is capable by the grace of God in this life. There is nothing higher. There is no good greater than that of worshiping God in Christ. And nothing antagonizes Satan more than to see the church gathered, adoringly singing Christ's praises, reverently hearing Christ's voice in the Word of God, lovingly enjoying God's people in their company, in the sacrament, and in the church's common life. Satan wants to stop the praise, silence the Word, disperse the gathering. Antichrist may do this from the top down, but the false prophet tries to rationalize it. You find the same thing, don't you, in the way in which the world reacts to Christian morality and ethics and virtue. If we express our opinion on, say, sexual ethics or injustice or prejudice, 
What is their cry? Oh, you're uncaring, you're unloving, you're insensitive. The gentle and also harmless agent of Satan will, like Judas, speak up for compassion, but it will be weaponized compassion. Designed not to build up the church, but to take the church down. You need to know that Satan hates us Christians. And this lamb-like colleague of Antichrist will argue with you that you should take one good, a good that God commands and commends, like loving your neighbor, feeding the poor, but making it into the highest good, a good that will eclipse and extinguish our high calling, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Judas didn't care for the poor. Judas didn't care for the poor. And Antichrist and the false prophet and their inspiration, Satan, Satan will seek to make you feel guilty about putting Christ first, putting His worship, His church before all other considerations. He'll suggest you sacrifice Christ first in the interests of others. But he has an ulterior motive. He wants to destroy Christ. And of course, there's a, there's a secular form of the false prophet, what we might call the ministry of propaganda. The hint of the text is that false prophets, perhaps through the mass media of communication and news, will act to deceive the, mass, the masses. Listen, listen I'm, uh, as I'm Speaking here, I need to put a little caveat in it. Some of my quotations, I've tried to bring my, my quotations from things that were written a long time ago so that you don't think that I'm using quotations from anybody who is alive now in our current circumstances. Okay? 1940. William Henriksen wrote a book, More Than Conquerors. It's just about in every minister's bookshelf. And in that book he said this, the false prophets will act to deceive the masses and to strengthen the hand of the government when it bears down on the church. That's what it means, he says in verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast, Antichrist, in its presence, on its behalf, and makes the earth worship the first beast. The second beast may seem sophisticated and harmless enough, but what it says will soon betray that it is a demon disguised as the Lamb of God. This beast will be partly successful. We're told it will succeed in persuading a great part of humanity to worship evil under the guise of good. Together, these beasts will represent worldly power and worldly propaganda, Henderson says. Now, I've mentioned Judas, and I've mentioned the ultimate good. There's a story in, in Acts chapter 3, and I remember Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking about this at a meeting I was at when I was about two. No, uh, it's a bit older than that. Uh, and it's on that text, you remember, Peter's going up to the temple with John. There's a man outside who's been unable to move by himself for 40 years or something, and, and the man wants money, and Peter says to the man, silver and gold have I none, 
but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. In other words, says Lloyd-Jones, the world will not object to your generosity. The world will not object to your involvement in social programs or social action. The world will not object to your self-sacrificial service for men and women at the verges of society. The world will not object to that. You'll save it money by doing that. The world will not object to that, but the world will object to you speaking about Jesus. I'm quoting from Professor Thomas Torrance, writing in 1960. And he's writing about communism, which was taking over nations all over Europe at that time and in the Southeast Asia. He writes this, Do we not see today that image, that is the image of of the beast, of Antichrist, set up in nation after nation upon the earth by the power of propaganda and lies? At first they think it's a form of social good. And if they detect anything of the image of the beast in it, they declare that it has no demonic power. It is a collective, communal image that embraces the small and great, the rich and poor, the bond and free, in which all are bound together by economic necessity. Then, all of a sudden, the image thunders. Behold, it awakens to life and power, a dread tyrannical might prostituting the social good of all to its bestial aim, clamps down upon men and women with an iron hand. In its communal rule, everyone is but a number, a number of the same beast bearing his name and number alone. He's talking about communism, which is, as you know, a Christian heresy. Now, we need to take this very seriously. We may not face this in our lifetime, but we need to keep the message of revelation alive for the generations to come so they are ready for this. Just as Hitler needed Goebbels, so the first beast needs the second. Without the second beast that mimics the lamb, the first beast would seem to be what it truly is, brute power with an agenda to control, to kill, and destroy. The task of the second beast is therefore to deceive, to prevaricate, to act as a cover for the real project of Antichrist. And we hear the spirit of the false prophet on our radio and television, the mass media of communication that relies on misinformation or just twisting information or providing an alternative narrative to a world that has lost its way. And so our children are confused about their identity, about who they are, what they are. You notice it works signs. It makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. It mimics the signs and wonders that are to mark the day of the Lord. But this is not the day of the Lord. This is the day of the great deception the Bible speaks about. Paul talks about it in 2 
Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and pretended signs and wonders and with wicked deception. Jesus warned about it in Matthew 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Fire from heaven here is a parody of the Holy Spirit who inspires the prophets. Let believers be warned. We need to be warned. The strategy is to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Now, all of these signs are done in the presence of the beast. That is, with his approval. The approval of the state. The backing of the state. Ultimately, Satan wants people to put their trust in worldly powers and institutions and personalities rather than in God. Let's read what it says, verse 15. It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword, that is the state. And it was allowed, that word is in there to remind you that God is in control of this. Things are not out of control with God. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast. Like Daniel and his three friends would not worship the image, cause them to be slain. Now here's the nub of the matter. Under Antichrist, the state wants to give you to give all of your faith and allegiance and praise to it and not Christ. And that's the issue, isn't it? Here we are today. We seek the welfare of our country, America. We want all Americans to thrive. We honor the president. We honor the houses of Congress, irrespective of the particular person or people or party that may hold the offices for any particular time. We don't call any man master except Jesus. And to our own master, we stand or fall. Our conscience is tied to the Word of God. And ultimately, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the apparatus of the false prophet utilizes its influence in the mass media and social media platforms to influence the way people think about things, creation, sexual politics, religion generally. Immorality is normalized. Things that are beyond our own comprehension that people could even entertain are increasingly sanitized. But the false prophet is not only active in the state. The false prophet is also active in the church. Take the subject of missions, missiology. Our church, this church, 10th, back in the 60s, faced a big crisis as, as the denomination to which we belong, the church to which we belong, the United Presbyterian Church, went deeper and deeper, deeper 
in a direction that was contrary to the Word of God. And back in 1967, there was an assembly held in Uppsala uh, on the mission of God, and the mission of God at that assembly was defined in words that you would recognize even today. It was defined as shalom and humanization. Shalom. When I came here, people talked about seeking the shalom of the city. That word, it comes from the, the Jews, of course, but its usage comes from this 1967 Uppsala Assembly. And here was a rationale behind this view of the mission. It is the world that must be allowed to provide the agenda for the churches. And as they went on to explain, conversion can be defined as social change. social justice, or human flourishing. Even other religions can be bearers of the Spirit. Pope Francis, who shifted from the orthodox position of his predecessor, when he said, the pluralism and diversity of religions are willed by God in his wisdom. So people of other religions, or none, can be conceived of by this uh, liberal stream of Catholicism as anonymous Christians. In other words, other religions can be bearers of salvation. Pope John Paul II was orthodox in his view of God and in his view of salvation. We disagree with him in how salvation is delivered, but he recognized, as we do, that there is a longing for God in people in the world, and maybe even what he called a nostalgia for God. They, they would like God to be there in their lives, and that's something we read about in, Revel in Romans chapter 1. But here's the thing, and this is what Pope John Paul II would have said. God has built this desire for God into the natural order. And in that natural order, He's given us an incipient knowledge of God. But that knowledge of God will only condemn us unless it lands on Jesus Christ. What knowledge is there will condemn us unless it brings us to Jesus as our Savior. Only when we land on Christ do we enjoy the triune life of God. And so the voice of the false prophet can be heard in politics, science, in newsrooms, and social media platforms, in churches, and in private conversation. What is the outcome of those who resist? You notice there are those who resist. There are those who will not bow the, their head. Well, for them, those who will not worship the beast, will be slain. Of course, not all of them will be slain. The beast then goes on to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on their right hand or their forehead so that no one can buy or sell until he has the mark. I'm sitting here, or I'm not sitting, you're sitting. Uh, and I'm standing looking at you, and I know that some of you have got great ideas of what the mark of the beast may be. And you're probably wrong. 
This presupposition here is that the majority of people will fall in line and embrace the seduction and deception of the prophet. What begins as many to, as one of many ideas becomes the ideology and results in the infatuation of people with the, pro, the purpose. In other words, the majority of people will believe the lie rather than the truth. That lie may be propagated by a single voice. Think Adolf Hitler, the Nuremberg rallies. It may be propagated by a collective monster. Think the USSR. Or it may be propagated by the loud roar of the crowd. In our particular day, it is the crowd, aided and abetted by the news outlets and social media, which prevails. The voice of the crowd prevails in decisions being made in our schools and colleges and in our culture. The crowd decides who shall or shall not be cancelled, applauded, vilified, or eulogized. The French Revolution was an early expression of this. It doesn't matter how much of a Christian shape we manage to give the world apart from Christ. All we do by trying to do that is to give fresh opportunity for the forces of evil to rise and to fascinate and to hypnotize people until they're utterly deceived. How do we understand this mark? We have to see it against the background of something that was said earlier on in Revelation. God puts His seal upon all of His elect. So it's figurative, isn't it? It's figurative. It's not a little code embedded in your thing meal. Whatever you come up with, it's, it's nonsense. What is the seal? The seal is the Holy Spirit, who is the love of God poured into the hearts of God's people. The love of God, the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father. That seal is a guarantee of our future inheritance in glory. Under the seal of the Holy Spirit, people become children and heirs, sons and siblings in the family of God. But under the human beast, humans become commodities. They're numbered. They have a number. That's the point. They are a commodity. Not who am I, what am I? Under the beast, humans lose their their individuality, their identity, their freedom to be who they are. It's Christian countries that have introduced the whole idea of freedom into society. Freedom as a word, as an idea, has Christian origins because of the liberty that Christian people enjoy in Christ. But under Antichrist, I'm expendable. I'm exchangeable with anyone else. I can myself be bought and sold. I am the beast's property. Therefore, I am expendable. The denial or suppression of the image of God in human beings is Satan's work. As the prophetic spirit exposes the truth of all things, so the false prophet spins a web of lies inviting us to debase ourselves by worshiping the beast rather than 
the Creator. So what does 666 mean? In the Greek, it's spelt out in words, 666. The ancient church recognized that John was using the Jewish practice of gamatria, whereby words have numerical equivalents based on the value of the letters. The early Christians thought that it might stand for Nero. Actually, it does. Caesar Nero adds up to 666. One of the early church fathers worked out that Nero really is 616 and reckoned it was a mistake. It would have spoiled the fun for the rest of us all through church history if they'd made that correction because we enjoy it being 666. But John is telling us here not of Nero but of the final beast. The sum of all our fears. The last day's enemy of God in his political and civic form. He represents more than one country or empire. He represents the kingdom of this world, human society in rebellion against God. The number six takes us back to creation. The sixth day God made humanity. The number six stops short of the seventh day, the day when God rested. You might describe God as the sum of the 777, the perfect perfection repeated. The number six falls short of number eight. On the eighth day, Easter, the resurrection, the eschatological fulfillment of all the latter-day promises, the day of the new creation. You know they found out early on that under Gematria, the name Jesus in Greek adds up to 888. Well, I think, I think we're probably on safe ground saying that the evil trinity of 666 apes the holy trinity of 777. In, in the book of Revelation, Christ and the trinity are repeatedly said this, he was and is and is to come. Of the demonic triad, it says, it was and it is not and it shall go into perdition. In many ways, that's one of the messages of the book. Now, the nations of the world, including our nation, have been well served by Christianity. Much of what we do, much of what we understand of our nation here has been influenced by Christianity. There's a shape, a Christian shape. If nations want the kind of freedoms, civility, and morality that they're inherited from their Christian past, then they must have the gospel of salvation. All that can be done without Christ, apart from Christ, is to give fresh air to unbelief and to give organic and subtle shape to human evil pride and selfishness. The number of the beast is the number of humanity without Christ. You remember Jesus told a story? There's a man possessed of a demon. A strong man comes in, kicks the demon out, gets the cleaners to come, clean the whole house. 
and then leaves it. And the demon comes back with all of his mates. A whole crowd of them come and infest the place. When we try to change society and we try to make a difference in society without Christ, that's what we're doing. We're getting rid of the demons we see. We're cleaning it all up, but we're making a home for more demons in the future. That's what civilization without Jesus Christ is. And as Jesus said, the last state will be worse than the first. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is invisible and unobservable except to the eye of faith. But God is working. God is working in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And Christ is the true image of man as well as the image of God. He alone is our master. And I suppose the ultimate warning here is this. That when at some point the state demands our total submission at the expense of Christ, it's time to stand out and to stand up and to prepare yourself like the three men of Daniel's friends for the fiery furnace. And then it will be death and glory, death and life, and Jesus will return. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today you would uh, make us highly aware of the ways in which people are already mimicking the work of the false prophet, the ways in which morality is being consistently and increasingly being torn apart in our society to our children our grandchildren they're being worn down some don't even know what they are the poor dears who they are Lord we pray that you would make us vigilant and prayerful for evil days we hope don't come in our lifetime or in our children's but for the evil days that will come And in our day to be faithful to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.